Well, the Drug Enforcement Agency has announced it has arrested more than 800 people nationwide as part of a two-month-long crackdown on online sales of illegal drugs. Agents seized nearly 2 million pills laced with the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Fentanyl is said to be 100 times more powerful than morphine. The news comes as the Kauai Police Department issued a warning this week about the increase of fentanyl use on the Garden Isle. The Conversations' Russell Subiano talked to two residents with eyes on the situation, Police Chief Todd Raybuck and Keala Foundation founder Aaron Hoff. My buddy just um, came out with a documentary. It took him about a year to put it together. It's very well put together. It's on the um, fentanyl problem, and it's... Um, it's a huge problem. It's on Kauai right now, and it's pouring through our community. It's, it's in all types of drugs. That's from a video posted on Instagram by Kauai resident Aaron Hoff. He started a foundation on his home island that helps provide youth with opportunities to live healthier lifestyles. It was his video that prompted me to ask, what is fentanyl and how bad is it? So I called up the Kauai Police Department and spoke to Chief Todd Raybuck. So fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. A more commonly known synthetic opioid is probably oxycodone, which is often referred to by its trade name of OxyContin. And so these drugs, these opioids, make up a wide range of both synthetic and non-synthetic painkillers or narcotic analgesics. And they're made both by pharmaceutical companies. Those are mostly in pill form and sometimes in a liquid form. And then illicit form, such as fentanyl is illicit, heroin is illicit, meaning illegal, the danger with fentanyl is, in the illicit form, it's 100 times more powerful than morphine. Just two milligrams of fentanyl can cause an overdose. And to put that in perspective, one teaspoon of salt is 2,300 milligrams. So 2,300 milligrams of salt in a teaspoon and only two milligrams of fentanyl could cause a fatal overdose. And so we're seeing this, unfortunately, being used both intentionally and unfortunately, too, I think we're seeing people who are unknowingly ingesting it because it's cut into other drugs or taken by mistake. According to Chief Raybuck, the opioid addiction and overdose issue has been a growing problem in the U.S. for the last decade. But in the press release issued by KPD on Wednesday, the department was only able to touch on the increase in fentanyl-related incidents over the last few months. So I asked the chief to elaborate. Last year, we saw two confirmed synthetic opioid overdose deaths. And already in 2021, we have two confirmed, uh, along with several suspected overdoses that were awaiting toxicology reports. Unfortunately, we've seen this emerging trend both across the United States and now here in the state of an increase in overdoses. Last Wednesday, September 22nd, we had had a 911 call reporting that two females were in, in a park and they were both unconscious, one breathing not, and one not breathing. The officers that arrived suspected that it was an overdose death or overdose related, I should say, opioid overdose related. Fortunately, an off-duty police officer and an off-duty nurse, some off-duty individuals had already started performing life-saving measures before the officers arrived. But the officers arriving immediately recognized the signs and symptoms of an opioid overdose. Uh, fortunately, KPD, along with, I think, all of the police departments in the state, have been issued naloxone. Naloxone, most commonly referred to, as you mentioned, by its trade name, Narcan. And naloxone is a tool, fortunately, that we have to be able to introduce it to a suspected overdose, which then helps, in most cases, those people recover. Also standing up against the latest wave of illicit drugs to hit our islands is Aaron Hoff 
He started his foundation after recovering from a 10-year addiction to drugs and alcohol. He's been clean and sober for nearly 25 years and has spent much of that time helping others recover from addiction. I see the tides of it. I see the progression of it. And I see like with COVID and all that, I I see the the parts where it's like, it's getting worse because Mm -hmm. of the things that are happening now. And then I also, the stuff with the fentanyl, I see it. Like I have a lot of friends in the mainland and I have a lot of, I just have a lot of connections with people who are, have their pulse on what's happening with this, with the drug scene and the stuff with the fentanyl. It's like, it's not just a bad batch coming to Kauai. It's in everything that's coming to Kauai now. So that changes the whole landscape of, drug use you know what i mean but the stuff that's coming in now like it says if it's not from a doctor or if it's prescribed the chances of them getting a, a fake pill that has fentanyl in it is highly possible what's going to happen it's not going to just be the drug addicts dying there's going to be a lot of people that will be affected by this because it's coming in at a, at a rate that's just going to saturate everything and it's only a matter of time and if you read in the police report, there was 18 episodes of Narcan use in the past month. So that means there was 18 people who were dead, were dying, that had to be revived with Narcan. And five of them didn't make it. When you get hooked on drugs, it doesn't just affect the drug addict. The whole entire family becomes sick. And it just destroys the fabric of the community because it doesn't stop at just the drug addict. You know, the family starts to learn how to become enablers. They lie for their kids. So they start doing these things that are so dysfunctional. It becomes a way of life for them. And it turns into the cycle that we've seen for generations. The concern is more than just the increasing availability of fentanyl on the island. In Hoff's Instagram video, he says that the environment on Kauai makes kids susceptible to getting caught up with drugs. It's just a really condensed environment. So like when I was being raised, I was a bartender at a young age. My uncles would send me to the cooler to grab a beer for them, you know, because they're lazy. They're like, hey, boy, go grab a, go grab a beer for uncle. Yeah. So I'll start doing that, grabbing right. beers, and, you know, and, I'm, and I'm watching them. And these are the people that, I, that are my family and my environment, you know. And I go, to, I go to the beach, and it's like all my uncles that are surfing down there and diving. And you know what I mean? I look up to yeah. all of these people. A lot of them all smoke weed. So I'm, as a kid, I start to get comfortable with that environment. So I start to build a relationship that's not a threat. And then sooner or later, there comes a time where I end up falling into that environment because that's the environment that I know. That's the environment that I'm constantly being raised in, mm-hmm. you know? And, and then, and if I'm going home and my, my parent, you know, it's, it's a really subtle problem that people don't see the depths of how damaging it is. It's like, if I'm drinking around my kids, I'm setting them up for that lifestyle. If I'm smoking weed around those kids, I'm setting them up to be able to step into that lifestyle very easily. I'm not setting the example that this stuff is not good for you. It destroys your ability to be successful. You know, it destroys your ability to naturally understand how to process feelings without having to go to something to numb them. My philosophy is kids go through all these things in life and if they don't have an outlet to process that trauma, they're gonna stuff it. As they keep stuffing it and stuffing it and stuffing it, what's gonna happen is they're gonna start to feel this like, this dis-ease inside of themselves and they're not going to feel happy and there's just going to be that undermine, but they can keep a, fi- a, a good face. Like they're yeah. feeling really good and life's great, you know, cause everybody's good at that. And then what's going to happen is they're going to, one day they're going to take a hit off a joint and they're going to feel really good or they're going to take a drink and they're going to feel really good. So then they're going to associate, like, I know how to make myself feel good. Now I can go ahead and have a drink or I can smoke a joint just like my uncle guys do it. No wonder they do it. You know what I mean? Or my aunties, right? You know, and then, and then I start there. 
the beginning of addiction is right there. It's going to something outside of yourself to make you feel good. That's a temporary solution that works for a little while until you can't stop anymore. With the potential for fentanyl use to spread to all parts of the island, I asked Chief Raybuck what KPD is doing to stem the use and distribution of the drug and what the community can do to help. The first and foremost thing that, that we're trying to do through our press release and through you know, some other efforts that we are in the planning stages of doing is educating our community to be ab about the dangers. That's the most important piece of this because law enforcement can't solve this problem. We're not certainly not going to arrest our way out of this problem. And so the biggest thing that we're focused on right now is educating our community. That's one thing. Obviously, we're targeting the importation and selling of this drug. And so we have ongoing investigations to try to identify where the drugs are coming from. Uh, we, we work with all of the counties in that attempt, as well as with our other state and federal partners to try to reduce and eliminate the supply. But most importantly, I think what we, what we need from the community is their support in becoming better aware of this dangerous drug, the impact that it has on our communities, because the biggest way out of this is through prevention. If we can communicate and educate our folks about the dangers of this drug and prevent people from using the drug and assisting them in getting the help that they need, we can hopefully try to save lives, and that's our goal. That was Coy Police Chief Todd Raybuck and Keala Foundation founder Aaron Huff talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. You know, to honor Hawaii's last reigning monarch, the State Archives recently launched the digital collection of Queen Liliuokalani's personal papers on what would have been her 183rd birthday. In a nod to National Archives Month, we revisit our conversation with State Archivist Adam Jansen about the unprecedented access now available to all. We're very honored to be the repository that Her Majesty chose to deposit her personal manuscript collection with before her death. And so we've been sitting on this collection for, well, obviously over 100 years. And it is really an unprecedented view on the life and time of the Queen, because it includes not only her papers, but also her husband's family business papers. So the collection itself goes back to the 1830s, 1840s and documents the Dominus family businesses and all they did, and then carries all the way through, really to the end of her life. Looking at this massive collection is an opportunity to understand who she was as a person at a level that individuals have never had the opportunity before. There's no filter. There, there's absolutely no filter. Nobody's interpreting it for you through their worldview, saying, I think this is the important stuff, or this is how I interpreted her words. This is an opportunity for the public to go in and at an intimate level, read her personal diary entries, things that she wrote for herself and wanted to deposit in the public archives so the public could read it and understand everything she had to go through and what was going through her mind. It's amazing. You know, in this day and age, you know, that's the type of leader we need to draw inspiration from. From her entire life, she did nothing but try and better the life of her people. And it, it is just a beautiful, amazing story of perseverance. And the last time we talked, you had shared the story that you had come across a letter that she wrote to, I believe it was the son of her financial person. And it was a letter that she wrote. She had just gotten word that Princess Kailani had passed. 
that is also one of the collections we have. It's not in her personal manuscript collection, but it's actually in J.O. Carter's collection, which we are also working on getting digitized as well. And again, it's one of those unbelievably intimate windows into her, her thought because she was pen pals with J.L. Carter's son. J.L. Carter was her financier and representative here in the islands when she was in D.C., you know, fighting for restoration. But for some reason, she'd struck up a pen pal relationship with his son. And, you know, how's it going? You know, are you enjoying going to school? You know, just really friendly, chatty stuff. And she's writing to him, and halfway through the letter, she stops and says, oh, she, she's writing, oh, I, you know, I heard Kaiolani is getting better, and, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing her. And then halfway through the letter, she stops and says, I've just received a telegram letting me know that she passed away. So we know exactly where she was and when she received and how she received the news. I mean, I have chicken skin just talking about it. Such a powerful story. And then with this unbelievable heartbreak, she still ends it with much aloha. Because that's who she was as a person. And it's just a beautiful Again, very intimate view into who she was. But those are the kinds of documents that you have at the State Archives. And again, because we've put everything out there and we have a very comprehensive digitization process where it's not just digitize it and get it out there. It's replicate the experience as if a researcher came into the facility and physically looked at the files. So we do things like digitize the folder. So how is it intellectually organized? And then we digitize front and back of every single page because I don't want my team to determine whether that pencil mark on the back is inadvertent or did it have significance. And for the bound volumes, we digitize the front cover, the interleaves. And then if they only use the first 10 pages out of 100, we digitize the other 90 anyway because we want the researchers, the public to know they have access to absolutely everything we have. That there's no question of, well, you know, maybe there's something in the back that, you know, really had some hidden significance. It's all out there. We want everybody to use it because we're the public archives. We're their archives. And if the public doesn't have access to it, is it really a public record? So our huge push during this whole unfortunate pandemic has been to digitize some of the most important things we have so that the public everywhere, anytime, can have access to these resources. And that's the beauty of this, because for the folks on the neighbor islands that are looking things up that have an interest, they have to come to Honolulu and knock on your door and sign in, and now they can just do it from home. And that's, that's absolutely it, because we've had to reduce the number of researchers that we allow in. We're one of the only memory institutions that stayed open through the whole pandemic. But to make allowances for the difficulties, We've had to spread the tables out. We've had to cut the numbers down. So we occasionally have literally lines out the door. So people have to queue up and we guarantee them two hours. But if there's people out the door, we've got to get them in too because they have rights to access. So if you're coming from a neighbor island, that can be difficult and it's not fair. It shouldn't be any easier for, for people on Oahu than Maui or the big island. So how do we create equity and how do we get greater appreciation for the richness of what is contained in the public archives. So we basically have then these documents, just everyday stuff, but really meaningful when you when you think more than 100 years has passed. And that to me is the beautiful thing about the collection, is it is everyday stuff. 
it's her writing to Katyolani as a sibling level relationship and discussion. It's her writing to heads of state. It's her writing to DC to say, I need to be restored. So it's a gamut of everything. It's her political, it's her as a sovereign, it's her as a person. And for us, because it is such an incredibly rich collection, we've done something we've never done before, and that's itemize and describe these records at an individual level. It's not, here's a box of her correspondence from 1888. It's, here's a letter from her to this person on this date, and here's the subject. So you can do keyword searching across, because 24,000 pages is a lot of, of information. And so we, we want to allow people to hone in. And we've also done things like, which language is it written in? Maybe I only want to see things in the little Hawaii. And along those lines, not only did we create these item level descriptions, but we translated them into a little Hawaii. And our digital archives is now functionally bilingual. So we can finally, for the first time in our history, present all of this in the language of preference of the researcher. That is truly amazing. And we're just so excited about what that opens up for us as a public archives, being able to more fully support and encourage research in the two official languages of the state. What a banquet you've just laid at our feet. We couldn't think of any better way to honor Her Majesty's birthday than to make all of this available to the public, which ultimately was her wish. Is there anything in particular that users need to know? Just be prepared. There is so much to have to work through that it's not like a library. You just can't go and pull a book off the shelf. So you're going to have to dig in, get comfortable, but it's yours. Download it, do what you want, print it out. Along those lines, we also digitized all of our 120 photographs of Her Majesty in very high resolution. Make them poster size, put them in classrooms, bring them to work. This is public material, public domain. We don't charge for you to use it. So please make use of this unprecedented resource. Yeah, and share it. Please. All right. Thank you so much, Adam Jensen. It's an honor. That was Adam Jensen, state archivist, talking about uh, it has di- how it has digitized 24,000 documents as part of the Queen Liliuokalani uh, collection, and it's thanks to a grant from the Liliuokalani Trust. The archives launched the online access for all to use and share on September 2nd, the Queen's birthday. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. And joining us for today's reality check is reporter Nick Ruby. Honolulu Civil Beat has an update on a disturbing story about a case of mistaken identity. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so this is, uh, you've got new information about a story that you've reported on. So our story today is a follow-up to some previous reporting about uh, an egregious case of mistaken identity. And it involves a man by the name of Joshua Spreistersbach, uh, who was arrested outside of a homeless shelter in 2017 by HPD um, on a warrant for another man uh, named Thomas Castleberry, 
who at that time was actually serving a prison sentence in Alaska. So HPD thought Spreister's Bach was Castleberry. Um, now, Joshua had repeatedly uh, said to a bunch of officials throughout this process of being prosecuted that he was not uh, Thomas Castleberry, but he was still charged as uh, Castleberry and sent to the Hawaii State Hospital, where he ended up being held against his will for, for more than two years um, until officials finally realized, hey, we have the wrong guy here. Um, now, today's piece on Civil Beat, I, I reported on some newly obtained police reports that, uh, that show exactly how HPD had made this mistake at least two times before, confusing Joshua Spreister's Bach with Thomas Castleberry, um, but that they had caught it, and it didn't get to the situation uh, that it did in 2017 when Joshua Spreister's Bach was sent to the state hospital. Reports also really helped to explain how this mix-up all started in the first place when uh, Spreister's Bach was arrested in 2011 for trespassing uh, at an elementary school. Now, it's just amazing, though, that, okay, he was arrested twice. They figured out, okay, this was not the right guy. But then he gets arrested a third time, and he gets put away. That's right. And I think that there are a lot of questions about how could something like this happen. Now, the Hawaii Innocence Project has taken up uh, Joshua Spreister's case, and they're trying to get to the bottom of it. But first of all, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to clear uh, Joshua's name. Because right now, uh, in, in the eyes of the police and the courts, Joshua Spreister's still maintains the alias as Thomas Castleberry, even though it's been proven repeatedly that he is not, in fact, Thomas Castleberry. Um, now, uh, there, the, the Innocence Project has filed a petition with the court to try to get this changed, but until that happens, uh, Mr. Spreistersbach, if he gets arrested in Hawaii, this could happen again. He could once again be confused for Thomas Castleberry, although I think with all of the press coverage, hopefully that won't actually be the case. And Castleberry, um, your, your reporting found out that that was actually uh, uh, his grandfather's name. So that was part of that mix-up. Exactly. So this mix-up really started in 2011 when Joshua Spreistersbach was arrested for trespassing on school property. When the police officers asked for his name, he gave the name Castleberry initially. And they asked his first name. He started dancing around it and then said, hey, my name's William Castleberry. Now, William Castleberry is actually Joshua Spreistersbach's grandfather, who is of no relation to Thomas Castleberry. So when mm. the police put in the last name Castleberry into their database, it popped up a warrant for Thomas Castleberry, which is when they decided to uh, arrest him on that warrant. Although there, uh, at that time, Joshua had never, he, he gave his real birthday and social security number. And so in that case, eventually the police officers realized, or the, the courts realized that, Joshua was not Thomas Castleberry, and they never actually went after him for that warrant. And again, that happened a few years later. All right. Well, it's uh, certainly an intriguing story, and uh, we invite our listeners to uh, check out the story online. But thanks so much, Nick. Did it. That was Nick Ruby joining us with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Community and partnership are the cornerstones of Waiakea Hawaiian Volcanic Waters Kokua Initiative. Created by founder Orion Emans, the uh, Give Back program is funded through a percentage of sales of the company's bottled water. The Conversations Lee and Song sat down with uh, Director uh, Jolie Ng to learn how the initiative supports the Big Island community. We do a lot of community work at Waikia, and the beautiful thing about it is I'm encouraged to do so. I'm encouraged to go out and find more people to help. I'm encouraged to keep connecting and making partnerships, and it's very team-driven, and I have to say that I wouldn't be able to do it without the help of others really takes everyone pulling together to make our community stronger. And on your website, it lists all the different community groups, the people that your company has touched through the Kukua Initiative. Too many to just go through in one segment interview, (laughs) but share with listeners examples of the work you do. We really do individual case-by-case service. What I do is I meet with them, and then I ask them what their needs are, and then we go from there. So like Mountain View Elementary, they needed slippers to having the school ready for children without footwear or their footwear is breaking. So we did a drive, just like we're doing for the Hawaii Diaper Bank this Saturday. We did drive. We collected slippers, and then Waikia Cocoa Initiative matched whatever we collected and tossed in a little bit more and donated the slippers to Mountain View Elementary School. And then we also, of course, donate water to the Food Basket or Hawaii Island Food Bank. We have also done a partnership with the Hilo Gardening Initiative, along with the Lions Club, where we meet up with Sarah Barry, the founder of the Hilo Gardening Initiative. She's a student at University of Hawaii here in Hilo, and she's a culinary student, so she cooks in a day. And then we help distribute that food in the afternoon to the homeless community. And with that, the Kuku Initiative donates all the water, and we help to provide paper products, spoons and then we also put together these hygiene blessing bags we call it and it's filled with different assortment of things like shampoos soaps sanitizers toothbrush toothpaste razors all that kind of stuff that maybe someone who is houseless may need to replenish um okay farms did the hawaii echo csa food boxes so we help donate all the water to go in the food boxes and hawaii Food bank does food boxes, so water goes in there to go and help the community. And that's kind of my my jam there to help those in need. I've been doing it for so long that I really gravitate to others who are doing the same. And it's wonderful, yeah, yeah, that for you, with what you're doing in your company, though, you're able to put those two together. And you have this wonderful radar that's always up and scanning to see what the community needs. But how do people reach out to you? Um, they Sometimes they go through the website and they email us and comes filtering to me. A lot of the times I'm connected with many organizations, so it comes through the organizations. And you know how it is in Hawaii. It's really the coconut wireless where people talk to other people. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. we get connected that way as well. But if people do want to connect with the Cocoa Initiative, all they have to do is go to our website and shoot us an email through the contacts. And it'll come to me really quickly. 
And during these COVID times, how has it been for you guys? What sort of landscapes are you navigating now? COVID was interesting. It made us pivot. You know, just in the beginning, it was a lot of masks and sanitation equipment. And now it kind of changed a little when we found that in the care homes, the kupuna needed ways to connect with family because family weren't allowed into the home. They could talk on the phone, but they couldn't really see their loved ones. So we figured out a way to get the Kindles so that they could video conference each other through iPhone and through the Kindle app. So that was an interesting way of expanding how we gave service. So it's really cool where we can kind of brainstorm ways to give back to communities. And, you know, I want to mention that it's not just me. There's so many of us out there and we partner together and that's how we make community work. So the Waikia Kuku Initiative is the Waikia team. And even in that alone, I have so many backers behind me. I'm every single person in the company looking out, no matter what job role that they have in our company, they're looking out for someone in need and they we text message each other and they're like, hey, I heard about this school needs help, they need supplies, they need footwear, or they need hygiene equipment, or they need backpacks, and then we jump on it. And then I have another team that will help me make purchases. And it's a really fun way to find people together to build a bond of friendship and when we're trying to do good on top of our job that we already have, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a current Kakua has identified is assisting low-income families with young children. There's an upcoming diaper drive you're holding, right? Yes, this is important work because I'm not sure if everybody knows this. One in every three families has to make a decision between purchasing diapers or purchasing food every month. So the diapers that we donate supplement these families. Mm. You really help them not to have to choose between feeding their family and baby having nappies. Yeah, you know, when I learned that some families were having to make that choice or having to not put diapers on their baby or on the other extreme is they're leaving their baby in their diaper until it was leaking or, you know, babies getting rash and things like that. And there was another family I was told that were putting newspaper on their baby because they couldn't afford to buy diapers at all. That was something that really hit home. Having children, you know, myself, um, I decided, yeah, we really need to help the diaper bank to, because they were helping families who were in need. And a lot of the families that they serve are houseless as well. Some of those families are living in their cars or their vans. And I feel like I've seen the increase in houselessness and in need increase, of course, because of COVID. And we really need people to pull together to help one another. It's not for us to judge because we could be there in a second. But because if not us, then who? It is our kuleana to go and help. It could be just a smile. It could be just kindness. If one person does an act of kindness every day, then how much better our world will be. That was Jolie Ng, director of YK's Kokua Initiative, Talking from the heart with HPR's Lillian Song. The initiative will be holding a food and diaper drive tomorrow morning from 8 to 11 at KTA in Puainako. 
And that's it for our show today. Next week, we'll talk a final extension on expired driver's licenses. The conversation, our show, is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Saviano, and Lillian Song. Join us on Monday for more of the conversation.